Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within Podcast. Got a special guest with me today, Phil Francone from Mindle USA. Phil, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Great. So where do I find you in Nebraska today? I am. I'm right in the middle of the state in Kearney, Nebraska, looking forward to uh, warmer days. Uh, I, I think we, uh, we both are. I thought Michigan was done with winter <laughs> and uh, woke up this morning to a couple inches of snow, so completely changed that. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's time for Mother Nature to give it up and get us right into turkey season. Yep. Yep. And I was trying to remember before, before the call fell. So we met one other time, and we were red fishing down in um, Louisiana. What year was that? Oh, let me think about that. Um, I think it would have been, I went three years, I think in a row, 2016, 17, 18, maybe 2015, 16, 17. So I think 2017. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I was going to say, 2017. It's amazing how time yeah. flies thinking back. Really fast. 2017. Yeah, I still have a bunch of those pictures of those fish on my wall. It was an unbelievable trip. That was, that was. I've been, uh, I wanted to get my daughter down there just because it, it's so action packed down there. Yes. I, I Every time I take her fishing on my own, it seems like we just sit there and she gets bored. So I got to bring her somewhere. <laughs> you we won't actually, get bored. You got to bring her somewhere. We actually do some catching. Yeah. You won't get bored down there. That place is unbelievable. Yeah. So let's uh, tell us a little bit about your background. How did, where are you from originally? How'd you get into the hunting industry? Sure. I was born in Bridgeport, Nebraska. Um, and if, if you, many people are in the waterfowl world, they know, uh, the North Platte river, Bridgeport, Nebraska, Broadwater, Nebraska, all through there. One of the main, uh, great flyways of waterfowl. And when I grew up where I was born, my grandparents owned about a mile and a half of the North Platte river bottom. And so I grew up on the river, in the river, beside the river, um, falling into old steel waterfowl pits with my dad and and uh, just spent a lot of time chasing waterfowl, and that's where the whole love of the outdoors kicked off. And I started in the outdoor industry 
Um, later in life, I moved from Bridgeport to Sydney, Nebraska. And if you're anyone out there is familiar with Sydney, Nebraska, it is the home of Cabela's. And growing up, all I wanted to do was obviously work at Cabela's as an outdoors kid. And, and uh, I was able to make that dream come to reality. I, I had a heck of a career there with Cabela's for a long time. And that's really, it started from pretty much right out of the womb all the way through to this point in my career. How far is Bridgeport from Sydney? It's about 40 miles. Okay. So it's, uh, it's, it's a quick jaunt. Just it's a little bit south and a little bit east. So besides uh, Sydney, Sid, Sydney is from Bridgeport. Yeah. Besides waterfall hunting, I mean, being in Nebraska, you guys are kind of like a hidden gem out there between uh, deer hunting and pheasant hunting and the waterfall hunting along the river and, and spring turkeys and the deer. And now you got elk over there and, and draw yes. antelope tags. I mean, you guys kind of got it all. Did you grow up doing all that? I didn't grow up heavily in the big game world. Um, everything we did, I mean, we obviously would. We, we did a lot of mule deer hunting. My grandparents also owned a bunch of acres up in the Sandhills. So we would go up there and it was um, kind of a family deal. We, we would go shoot some mule deer and, and uh, then we also had some, we raised some pigs and we, that's what we did. We made sausage and we made salami and we made all the things that uh, we like to do. We did all our own butchering. And, and um, so I did mule deer and, and uh, some whitetail here and there. We mostly chase mule deer, but whitetail here and there, mm -hmm. and then waterfowl growing up. And and the the other big game stuff kind of came afterwards after, you know, had had more opportunity, I would say. Because what we had before, we didn't have a lot of opportunity at what exists in Nebraska today. Yeah, it's, I mean, that, especially that part of Nebraska, it is truly one of the hidden gems that I, I think people it's are discovering unreal. now. But, I mean... Truly, it's got everything. It's got big deer. It's got big elk. It's, it's crazy. When we were growing up, we always didn't want anybody writing magazine articles about Western Nebraska because it was, just as you said, a hidden gem. And you're right. And there is, I mean, you can take anything, if, if you're lucky enough to draw it, the once-in-a-lifetime bighorn sheep tag. Oh, yeah. All the way down, all the way and everything pretty much in between. It's uh, it's pretty un unbelievable. Yeah, and I know um, our anybody that's listening, um, Worldwide Trophy Adventures office is still based in Sydney, um, and the consultants there love it because you can hunt Nebraska. You're literally almost in Wyoming. You're almost in yes. Colorado, and then you're almost in Kansas. So most of the guys they're literally hunting four states, all with I mean they can get in the state in thirty minutes, but they they hunt those states and it's only a couple hour drive, and and so like we have guys that will hunt whitetail in three of the states and they'll hunt mule deer in three of the states they literally get to hunt all within a couple hours of their house it's, it's just a, a perfect spot if you're a true outdoorsman and, and just love that time in the fall and the spring absolutely agree 100 percent. if you live in that area the we we talk about it a lot working at cabela's we had people that drove across the country from pennsylvania to go elk hunting mm -hmm. and i remember thinking these guys are in a truck for you know 20 24 maybe even more hours trying to get here and we have the opportunity to basically drive two two and a half hours and we're in the elk woods and it was it was a, a, a tremendous privilege yep yep so do you have any favorite memories growing up that kind of locked you into the outdoors that's a good question and it's one i thought about a lot because you go back and you think about all the things that you've done and, and obviously my largest accomplishments from what i've done in the outdoor world are as an adult but Growing up with my brothers, I've got two brothers and a sister, but my sister really didn't hunt. But uh, my two brothers and my first cousin, Andrew, 
we spent a lot of time in the woods together with either a BB gun or a pellet gun or chasing squirrels, chasing rabbits, chasing um, just about anything that moved. We, we uh, gigged snapping turtles. But if I go back to it, it's just, it's hunting with those guys. It's with my brothers mm-hmm. and my cousin. Those days are the ones that I, I really lean on. And it, and it's, it, it, it would never make a spectacular story in a magazine, but it's very meaningful because of who I was with. And I think, like, if you look at society now, a lot of those, those things growing up, because I did the same, same type of thing with my dad and my brother and, and so forth. Yeah. Those days seem to be gone to where kids get to truly experience that. Like, I always joke, I wonder how many Tweety Birds got shot with BB guns back then. <laughs> like, I, I know you weren't supposed to. I know Robin's protecting. Yeah. Like, I know all that. Yeah. But I just wonder, yeah. when you send a kid out with a BB gun, what you expect them to do and just how many Tweety Birds truly bit the dust there back in those days. There were a lot of barn swallows that were in a lot of trouble uh, yep. when we were <laughs> when we were around. And, uh, man, it was just great because in the the – I don't know if you want to call it freedom. I guess I'm going to the freedom you had in at that day and age uh, to just three or four little boys out running around in the woods, anywhere between probably I would say six or seven years old to ten to twelve years old um, from an age gap when mm-hmm. we first started getting into it. Like it's uh, you just wouldn't see that today, and it, it's it's truly unfortunate because even though the <laughs> there's some risk involved, the learning that we got and the freedom and the intelligence about the outdoors and all the things that we pulled from that were just awesome. Yep. True life, true life lessons that, that probably Absol- still affect you today. Absolutely. So as you said, you, then as you got into your, your later years in hunting and, and more of an adult, what's your favorite memory from those years? Uh, I'll, I'll take you back to my grandparents' farm. Um, cause it, it really means a lot to me. My grandparents' farm, um, going up there was just like this, nucleus of the family everybody came back there for christmas and everybody came back there to hunt and fish and all that stuff my grandfather got very sick and we ended up having to sell that farm so i had always sworn uh as a young man i think it was about 17 or 18 maybe when they had to sell it and uh, I, I just swore I'm, I, I'm going to own my own property again and um in 2014 after i spent a few years in canada working for cabela's up there I came back and I bought a farm in Kansas um, and I'm in Southeastern Kansas, a little bit East of Wichita. Okay. And prob- probably one of the coolest things I ever did was uh, I shot a straight six by six white tail, 174 inch Oof. deer, very first deer off that farm on my own property. And uh, I was a very proud moment to be able to set that farm up, put in food plots, do all the work and then take a really wonderful deer um, on my own ground. Oh, no doubt. And especially a stud like that too. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, uh, it was an emotional experience. That's for sure. So as, as you mentioned, kind of growing up in that part of Nebraska, it was your, your dream going through school to eventually work at Cabela's, right? So you you knew that going through, how did, how did that actually happen though? Like that's probably the number one thing that we get on the show of, of, when I have guests on and so forth that, that all the, the listeners like is explain the story, how you got into the outdoor industry. There's so many people that want to get into the outdoor industry 
And I try to explain that there's so many different ways to do that, right? Like everybody looks at the person yes. that's on TV and wants says that's yes. how you get into the outdoor industry. I'm like, no, there are literally a million jobs underneath <laughs> that that fall in the outdoor industry that still gets you talking about hunting and living that each and every day. And everybody in the outdoor industry knows when fall comes, I mean, we got to go out, right? Like that's, that's what we do. And yes. that time off just comes. How, how did your story happen that you, you actually got into the outdoor industry? When I was in school, obviously being in town in Sydney, a lot of guys, parents worked for or worked for Cadals at the time. So when we were, growing up i just saw these guys so one guy that comes uh, to mind in particular is fred neal i'd known fred for years um my brother was very good friends with his son and i got to see fred he was uh shooting some television shows and he was in a magazine article or two and then he was flying overseas to go visit vendors and do all this stuff and it just sounded really romantic and really cool mm -hmm. like i'm gonna be able to go do all this great stuff and uh i first needed to get a college education so at that time um I needed to get some money for it. So I signed up for the national guard and I took off to basic training and went down to Fort Sill, Oklahoma and did my advanced individual training down there as well. When I got back, I was between semesters with college starting. So i all my friends were away and they're at school already. And mm -hmm. so I'm trying to get myself settled and, uh, I'm driving into my hometown, driving into Sydney from, uh, from the airport. And on the radio, it says Cabela's is hiring. And I'm like, holy cow, okay. I need to get a job until the new semester starts, so this is going to be great. Uh -huh. So I go out to the retail store, and I applied, and they hired me. And I, strangely enough, with where I'm at now today, that was November 13th, 1995, I uh, started selling footwear at the retail store in Sydney, Nebraska. And that was my start in the outdoor industry. Really? Thanks so that that was your yeah. job at the retail store to start with is the footwear department? <laughs> it, it was. Yeah, day one, they put me in footwear. I worked with a really great crew. It was really cool back in the old days when we just, at that point, uh, Cabela's only had two stores. We had Sydney, Nebraska and Kearney, Nebraska. So it was really uh, um, early on in the outdoor world phase for me. So uh, looking back, though, at the time when you got hired to retail and got put in the footwear department, what were you, were you excited that it was the footwear department or were you like, man, I wish I, I wish I'd get in the archery or, or something like that? Yes. It's yeah. a really good question. And so I was a little bummed out, right? So you're like, man, everybody wants to work behind the gun counter. Everybody wants to be a bow tech. Uh, you know, you, I, I, I would love to work in the fishing department and help, you know, do all that stuff. Yep. And, so you're bummed out. I'm like, man, I'm in footwear. I'm like, ah, oh, we'll see. It could be pretty cool. And you get over there and you get after it. And what you find out is every single person that needs to utilize a rifle needs to utilize a shotgun, needs to utilize a fly rod, needs some sort of footwear. Yep. And so I really got to enjoy talking to those people about where they were heading and, and really still gleaned a ton of knowledge and had a lot of experience um, learning from those kind of folks, just talking about what they needed to go where they were going to be and whether it be waders or hunting boots or hiking boots or whatever so it actually turned out to be a really cool place to, to talk to people i enjoyed it and how did it work for that you're in the retail store to start with and then eventually work your way up in the company yeah. good question so back in the old days cabela's had a uh, uh an associate level on the floor called a product specialist and you had to pass a big test and it was pretty brutal and had a very low pass rate and um, in order to pass that test and be kind of considered a product specialist it was kind of a big uh, rite of passage and in 1998 i did pass that test and they made me a product specialist and i actually ended up in the fishing department from footwear and one day um 
one of the guys from the corporate office, really what that store was at that time was a breeding ground of talent to move over to the corporate office. Okay. And so a lot of got a lot of up and comers that were in that building were pulled over to the corporate office. So, uh, my boss at that time, or the guy that hired me at the time, his name's Kent Thomas. And he came over and introduced himself to me and he's like, Hey, I'd really like to talk to you about this opportunity that I have, uh, in the footwear department. And, uh, I jumped at it because the, the, obviously the corporate world was where a lot of the more, um, the bigger opportunities came. So mm-hmm. I was very excited to be able to jump over there and take a, take on that bigger role and, and go for the bigger opportunities. Well, it definitely, definitely seems like you, you kind of got the, the bug or the passion for it yes. at an early age. And, and it makes sense for what you're, what you're doing now. Um, yes. like how, what's your relationship with the Mindell family? Like how, how did, how did all your history lead to what you're doing today? Hey everybody, I just wanted to drop in and remind you of an important tag deadline. We have Utah elk, deer, antelope, moose, sheep, goat, bison on April 27th, and Kansas has their deer on April 28th. The Idaho moose, sheep, goat on April 30th, and to kick the month of May off, we have the Montana moose, sheep, and goat on May 1st. Make sure to give the team at WTA a call and get applied. Um, early on, while I was still working at the retail store, uh, this very interesting German gentleman showed up to give us training on Mindel boots. He showed up wearing uh, hand-stitched leather, German breeches, and just like he looked the part. Like he just <laughs> yeah. came right, right from Munich. And I'm like, man, who's this dude? And as it turns out, it was Lars Mindel. And I think that would have been maybe 1996 or 1997. So the first time I shook hands with a Mindel would have been back, back then. And little did I know that it would lead to a lot later. But as I was in the footwear department in the corporate office, I ended up um, ascending to the role of the the, the boot buyer, mm-hmm. is what we called it. But I was the category manager that was responsible for the hunting boot section. And that started a direct relationship with the Mindel family and uh, working with both Lucas and Lars, who were the two uh, brothers. And uh, at, that, at that time, their father, Alphonse, was also part of the business. But... Uh, just got to work with them directly to design boots and develop boots and spend time in Germany and spend time in Austria and spend time in the mountains with those guys over there, um, developing a great relationship and just, um, a lot of trust. And I, and I would tell you it's, they, they have, um, they have a different take on the world. They don't, they don't run around the world like American businessmen mm-hmm. where it's, you know, go get money, go get money, go get money. It's more of, I want to build a relationship and I want to work with someone that I know and someone that I trust and someone that I really feel comfortable taking this Mindel brand forward into the future. And so we, I was able to develop that relationship with them and, uh, and it's kind of just continued to grow from there. So are there, are all of their boots made in Germany? Not all of them. So they do a lot of things. So let me think about how to parse it out. If you are looking at any of their traditional hardcore mountain boots, mountain hiking, mountain hunting, that stuff is made in Germany. They have some stuff that I would call more of the midweight product that is built in Italy. They do a few things in Slovenia, specifically some kind of cold weather winter product. And then when it comes to the lightweight stuff, as you would imagine, so more, um, I'll, I'll call it the tennis shoe market, yep. but in that lightweight um, shoe market. They do utilize uh, some manufacturing in um, Vietnam. Okay. So like the, the more tennis shoe stuff. And when you start getting into it, the intricate 
um, stitching and all of the patterning and all of the materials and the things that happen in those kind of more tennis shoe yeah. environments, it's much better to have it built in Vietnam than it would be in Germany because the skill sets are, are quite different from yep. building a hardcore mountain boot and building a lightweight tennis shoe. Yeah, no doubt. And I have to imagine is that is the fa- is the the Mindel family um, one of hunting origins over there, or is it a uh, hiking? Would, it it is, um, okay. and 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 both. So Alphonse Mindel, who is really the person who modernized and pulled the Mindel brand forward into what it is today, um, the, the the brand has been around, or the family has been building boots for three hundred years, which is very interesting. I think um, the tenth generation is now born. Um, into that family and into the bootmaking lifestyle. But Alphonse was the guy who really brought it to where it is today. And he was a world-class mountain climber. And being from where they are in Bavaria, they are obviously very close to the Austrian Alps and all, all, all the, the mountain range down there. And they get to spend a lot of time climbing there. So his he did hunt. But I would tell you, if you were to go and um, really dig into his lineage, that that man was a world class prolific mountain climber. And uh, Dad and I actually just last fall um, hunted the uh, Austrian Alps for Alpine ibex, and I have awesome. to admit, I I was completely blown away by the number of hikers there, and the and just that that culture. Because I mean, you're used to what you see here in the U.S. and and yeah, the yes. people that go and hike. But over there, I mean, that that's just what they did on the weekend. Right. That's what they did on the afternoon. They got out and and the government had all the trails and everything set up. And I mean, these aren't ones just going on just a little couple hour hike. There were some going on to where they'd be gone three or four days and they had these different buildings set up that they can stay at along the trail and everything. I just found it so fascinating. I've hunted in the Austrian Alps multiple times with Lucas. And so we've chased chamois and red deer and marmot over there. And it's unbelievable. So the hunting concessions that you particularly would have access to, or you would own Mm -hmm. depending on how it's set up, give you the opportunity to hunt in that space. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that other people can't hike through. So we've been on, we've been on a chamois hunt and had hikers walk right through and come up and chat with you and ask you how the hunt is and, and bid you, uh, you know, good luck and off they go. And it's, it's just, uh, it's awesome. And you're right. When, when they say, when you say this is no short hike, when when you go hiking in Austria and Germany, you're going hiking, and you're gonna you're in for a really um, difficult terrain, difficult trail, and beautiful scenery. Yep, yep. Our head it was funny. Our head guide showed up to where we were ibex hunting on on mine. We had two different areas. Dad went first, and then we went to a different area. And he showed up for mine. And I looked at him. I I said he's probably in his late sixties, early seventies. I mean, but yeah. just just wiry. And you could tell he spends a lot of time yes. on the mountain. He walked us into the side of the hill. I mean, just <laughs> completely wore us out. And he didn't yes. even break a sweat the whole time. Yes. Oh, man, that was great. And it was funny you said marmot, too. Because I was actually yeah. I was able to take a marmot on the trip, and I was probably more excited about that than anything because it's one of the areas yes. that you can legally hunt marmots. Yes, yeah. and it's really neat, and, and there's not very many opportunities to do it. But the reverence and the... Um, I'll call it the pomp and circumstance and what the, the, the respect that they give mm-hmm. even to a marmot versus what they give to a red deer versus what they give to a chamois is the same. And yep. it, the, the, it, the pageantry and all of that around the hunting community in 
Europe is really fascinating and really cool. Yeah. No, I, and I've, I've been fortunate to hunt over there a couple of times and you kind of peel that onion back each, each time you go to a different area and they just value it different than what we do here in the U S they do. They and, do. It, and it's cool to see that. And it's passed from generation to generation. And it's just one of those things yeah. as you see it in the field, it, it just kind of hits home. It, it really does. And it's, it's very meaningful. And it, it has changed me as a hunter here. Mm-hmm. When you, and I think when you grow up, when you're young, you're, you want to go out and you want to get a, a limited ducks and yep. you want to shoot your two, your, your two deer and you want to do these things. Now that I get older, it's it is very little about the actual taking of the animal and more about the the, the process and the, and the people and the fun around the camp and all of those things that mean the most to me anymore yep and it's it's funny you say that dad always told me growing up right like when i was young in my teens and in my early 20s um you kind of go through the 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 bloodlust phase right it's all you about do. a limit yeah. if i go out if i go out grouse hunting i'm not done till i get my limit right I'm disappointed. Exactly, exactly it's, right. it's not a good day unless I get five grouse. If I go out yes. duck hunting, it's a so-so day unless I get my limit. It's a great day if I get my limit in a couple of minutes, if I got to grind it out, whatever. If I go out deer yes. hunting and I'm unsuccessful, it's kind of, ah, it didn't, didn't really go. Then you kind of, trans like, that's phase one. Phase two is you kind of transition into this, okay, it's not about a limit. Now it's about a, it's a, it's about a specific size or an age yep. class that you're going after. Yes. Yes. So now it's it's going out duck hunting, only shooting drakes, right? Yep. Or yep. you had you had one really beautiful drake pintail come in and and you got that. That just made made the hunt because that's a that's yes. a mounter. Or you're deer hunting and Absolutely. you get a hundred and sixtieth whitetail, and that's kind of phase two. Phase three as a hunter is okay. I just really like the experience of being in the field. Yes. Whatever happens beyond that is a bonus, but I love going out with my kids or I just love to watch the sunrise, the sunset, yes. hearing the birds, watching a squirrel go while I'm in the deer blind and so forth. And it's funny you say that because as, as I talk to people, you can kind of tell as you hear them what phase they're in, right? Everybody, everybody's at a different phase. They go at different times. Like, like I can still talk to somebody in their, in their mid sixties and they're still in the, the limit phase, right? Like they still yes. love to go out and shoot limits. And yeah. I kind of look at myself now. I've been fortunate enough to travel over and spend a lot of time in the field. I kind of in, in that third phase, right? Like yes. when I started filming, I couldn't even imagine coming home empty handed from a filming trip. For sure. And now it's kind of like, yeah, it happened. And yeah, we won't get, we won't get much content or an episode out of it, but I still yeah. learned X and X. And I remember this sunrise and I met these yes. people here and it just yes. like that. Like I not to sound all sentimental and, and getting old, but like that's I just enjoy that part of it now. I do too, and that that part, that phase three, is my belief and that how I feel when I do get the opportunity to go hunt mm-hmm. in Austria or Germany or, or anywhere along those lines. They, I think they they start in phase three. Right? Yep, that, that's <laughs> so. what they did. Yeah, they, I don't think they get two or one. They just start in phase three. <laughs> they start in phase three, and it, and it's and it's really cool, and I really enjoy it. And it's just a really good way to look at conservation and look at what the future is and look at how you can bring other people along into it. It's really, it's awesome. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think I think part of that is too, like I always ask myself why, and it's the history and so forth. But one of it is it's so limited on the areas that in Europe you can hunt, right? Because there's yes. so many people spread all over the place. So that hunting ground is so sacred and yes, it's it so is. protected by the ones that truly love it. And I think that just even even enhances it more so of that experience in the field. Because a lot of the people, like when I hunted France, they lived in Paris. They were driving five or six hours away on a Friday so that they could hunt with their friends on a Saturday. And it, yes. was, it wasn't a hunt. It was, okay, I hunt in the morning, a giant lunch followed by an a <laughs> afternoon hunt followed by a giant dinner. And when I say yes. friends, like the places we were at, there are 30 people there. Like it, yes. it's what they do on the weekend during the hunting season and they value that land that they can use over there so much. Absolutely. Right. And, and they, um, they have high expectations. Um, yep. they have, they have, they want to make an experience out of it. They, it's, it's not a hunt. It, it is an experience and they really take you through the whole time. And it is, and you're right. It's, um, a lot of people driving a long ways and, and you're, you're going hunting and, and you feel like, okay, great. Maybe it's going to be like here. I'm, they're going to go put me up in a tree stand, and I'm going to sit by myself, and I'm going to watch for this deer to come in and, and do that. That's certainly not the case. Yep. No. Nope. Uh, it, it is a group. It is a group activity. It is a group experience, and it is a lot of fun. And I've uh, you, you kind of see it here in in the U.S. is like you'll be hunting in a certain area, and somebody will shoot a big deer, right? Well, there's some people yes. that are extremely happy, but then there's another ones that are like, man, I was hunting that deer, right? Like the disappointed <laughs> yes. part. In Europe, you don't see that. If there are 33 no. people hunting and somebody's successful and they get a boar, all 33 yep. are ecstatic because it wasn't that one person that got it. It was all 33. Absolutely right. There is yeah. zero competitive positioning on on the taking of the animal. It is It is a group experience and it is a group celebration. Yeah. I like it. I love it. Love it! Can't wait to get back. I, I, I'm same, very much the same. So, what what separates Mindel from other boot companies? So, that, I, and I would tell you right there that is one of the most asked questions that we get every day at Mindel USA, and it's I, I I say it this way: if you've ever driven a German-made vehicle, been in a German-engineered um, piece of equipment. Um, they do things differently. They mm -hmm. they have a process, and they are very very exacting in that process, um, if that's the right way to say it. But they build a boot that is not only able to withstand the elements of hiking in the most difficult terrain that you could absolutely imagine. Since I mean that is basically their backyard, but they make it comfortable. Mm -hmm. So in and, and what I do is I I liken it to. Italians making cars and Germans making cars. The Italians make wonderful stuff. Don't get me wrong, but an Italian car is fast and pretty and exciting, and it may not have all of the creature comforts and may not be all of that uh, the most comfortable place to sit. It is a fast place to sit and a beautiful place to sit. Mm -hmm. 
Germany's kind of like, I, I make BMWs, I make Mercedes Benz and it's a beautiful car and it's well designed and it looks great as well as all of the comfort that goes along with it. And that's really what we focus on. We can get our product. We can get you to the top of any mountain um, without issue. And we can do it in, a, in what we believe to be a, a much more comfortable way. There's more thought in the, into the last. There's a more thought into the interior components to ensure that at the end of the day, when you get down off of the mountain, your feet um, aren't one of your worries. Mm-hmm. And I've been, so I've been wearing Mindels for over 10 years now straight. And yeah. what I tell everybody is most people will get a, get a new boot, right? They got a hunt coming and they get the new boot and they're like, well, this is, I got to break this thing in, right? Yes. For me, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but for me, the break-in process on a Mindel is so simple and so easy, right? Yes. Like I, I like yes. I'll wear it a couple of times and I'll be like, yep, good to go, right? I get no, I get no blisters. What makes the break-in process so like? That's always been my question. Why is it so easy to wear <laughs> this boot and break it in versus another boot? Like I've I've had people that I've been hunting with and they're like, yeah, I've been breaking this boot in for the last four months. And I'm like, man, boot looks like it's half gone already. And you're telling me you're still breaking it in? Like it's still it's yes. still rubbing you wrong? Like what makes a, a mind will break in so easy? It's a good question. And to me, it, 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 the there's two things that go along with it. Number one, internal componentry. And we can talk and touch on a few of those. But number two, it's the the shape of the last that they use and how they build the, the boot around the last. Um, the Germans take a few more steps. So I've been in footwear factories all over the world, mm-hmm. um, Korea, China, um, you name it, all through all through Europe and, and Vietnam and the same. Um, the, the process that they use, the materials that they use, and everything that they put into that boot is world-class. They don't, like, the, the tannery that they go through is a family tannery that's been around for hundreds of years. The materials they use are all top of the line name brand Gore-Tex Vibram all of those good things they don't they do not compromise on the quality of the internal componentry the other part of it is that last the last is so important in the building of the footwear and the last is the form that they actually use to stretch the boot around and get it the shape that it is when you get it inside of the box at home and a good last means the world because every last is proprietary, right? So a guy mm-hmm. builds a boot down the road, he has to have his own last and have his own setup and, and whatnot. The, the focus on the two last styles that we use at Mindle, they, they've developed these last obviously over a long, long time. And the, the fit and the function and the shape of that last is so anatomically correct that I believe that helps that break-in process as well. So I'm probably going to go down multiple rabbit holes here and and just ask for, for mine. Like how long when they build a boot, um, like when they, I've just had some new boots arrive here. Like when they build that boot, do they start on it and go from start to scratch or is it a process to where one person does this, it slides along? Like how, how are the, the boots actually, actually made? And I know there's some stuff you probably can't, can't say just, because of yeah, proprietary, yeah. so skip over that stuff. Yeah, no problem. It is a it is a um, an assembly line type of a setup. So what you'll find is there there are going to be great people that that do the stitching. So we've got a, a stitching facility where they do all of the pattern cutting. So they'll cut all of the shapes of the leather. It's obviously all starts out flat. Their job is to bring that together with a sewing machine. And and some some people are capable of uh, 
sewing together an entire pattern. Other mm -hmm. people that will do like I'm in charge of sewing on the vamp, the front part of the boot. I'm in charge of sewing the collar. I'm in charge of sewing the interior. It, it can it can vary, um, but from there, then it goes into the lasting stage. So once once the entire upper has been stitched, it goes into the lasting phase, and that's where um, it'll come into the what I call the heavy machinery part of building of, of the footwear, and that's where it goes into the stretching of the leather over the toe over the toe. So they last the toe, they do all the stitching, and it depends on what. Um, construction method we're doing whether it's a stitch down whether it's a norwegian welt whether it's a cement construction there's a lot of different things that kind of come into that building phase but then it moves on and it'll just head on down the line and, and it'll get this the midsole glued on and then the outsole glued on and, and uh, if there's a rand that'll go on before the outsole goes on it just it's a man there's like i don't know there's hundreds of steps in building a piece of footwear and it is um, it, there's a lot of craftsmen. There are still, there's still a guy on the line at Mindel in Kirchenschoring, Germany, who was there when I first visited their facility in 2004. Mm -hmm. So from longevity, from talent, from the manufacturing process and, and having people that are true craftsmen and know how to build footwear, these guys have it in spades. That's awesome. It's really cool. So what, like, okay, so the boots made, what testing, um, before before a customer here in the U.S. would get it, what testing does that boot then go through before it would arrive in the mail to them? That's a good question. Um, when we start off with the design, we will, uh, the designers that Mindle uses when we put a boot together, they're Italian guys, they'll come up out of Italy, we'll meet in, in Germany, go through the design, they'll draw it up, and we'll make a sample and um, kind of get the design right, get the lay right, get everything to make to where it really looks like what we're waiting for, whether it be coloration or the collar or how it fits around the ankle or whatever the internal materials uh, we use in the boot are done. That's that all goes into that pile right there. So that starts step one. Does it does it fit the requirement that we have set out for? And, and from there, we'll go in and do fit test, wear test, and field test. And so. Even uh, depending on the material, even utilizing the same exact last, a boot of one material can fit one way and a boot of another material can fit another. Mm -hmm. And really what it comes down to is whether there's insulation or foam in there. So you have to really get that fit test right. So we've got a bunch of people who are measured to a T. They know exactly what size their foot is. They know um, how it should fit and how it should feel. And we go through a fit testing process to make sure that we're good with how that came off the last. And then we get wear test samples and we start getting them out there. And through my years of being in the outdoor industry, I've got a lot of buddies who, um, I mean, like you, who we can get a, a new set of boots to, who mm -hmm. can get them in the field fast and have a truly valid opinion about, like, this is how this boot should perform and is it. And if it's not, then we're going to go through and we're going to make some fixes and some improvements and, and get it back out there and try it again. So that, and there's, so that's kind of the, the person test and there's a million tests we go through from strength of leather, strength of stitch, waterproofing. So all of our boots get uh, waterproof, waterproof tested, mm -hmm. Gore-Tex certified, all that stuff. So there's a lot of lab testing stuff that goes into it as well um, to get it to where it is. But I think the most important is what we do with guys like you get them on your feet mm -hmm. because you're the, at the end of the day, we've got to make sure that I can make a scientific test, say what it needs to say. I need you to be happy with how it feels on your foot. Yeah. 
Hey everybody, I'm a believer in using the best and that's exactly what Gunworks rifles are. They're the best in the market. If you're looking for accuracy and dependability, make sure to go check them out. Get that gun of a lifetime coming your way at gunworks.com. If you guys are looking for the best seat covers on the market, you gotta make sure to check out Rough Tough. I've had them in my truck now going on four years and they are bulletproof. Make sure to check them out, roughtough.com. If you're looking to book the trip of a lifetime, make sure to give the team at WTA a call at 1-800-755-8247 or check out our website, worldwidetrophyadventures.com. Now you brought up wa waterproofing. This is this is a question that I've always always had, so yeah. I know other how they have. So waterproofing when it comes from the facility, it's waterproofed, right? So yep. what the guy that's going on the sheep hunt or that's going on a backcountry hunt for something, what do they need to do to protect that waterproofing along the way? Like what products do you use? How often do you have to do it? Can you overdo it with them? You can. Uh, I'll start with the, the you can overdo it, and you can use the wrong stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, the waterproof lining is actually on the interior of the boot. It's a Gore-Tex uh, membrane that is laminated to the interior lining of that shoe, and that gives us the waterproof barrier. That's That just keeps stuff from penetrating all the way through the boot. If you've soaked out your leather, like you've stepped in a creek, you've done something yep. along those lines, you've been walking in water all morning, whatever. That That is, is the most important. And really, over time, it's like tires. Um, in order to protect that, you got to wear good socks. You got to yeah. take care of your boots. You got to make sure you dry them. Don't treat them poorly and, and that kind of thing to keep that interior lining from getting punctured. On the outside of things, we have two things that we utilize uh, at Mindle, and it's our sport wax and our wet proof spray. We are very particular on what you put onto your boots from a wax perspective. Some of these waxes, um, mink oil, they have a very high oil content and it can be very difficult. Anything, anything petroleum-based is really hard on uh, glues and, and any of our rands and rubber rands because it can actually rot that rubber. Mm. So you have to be very, very careful with what you use. So we really recommend using our product because we, we have gone through, we've developed it with grangers in England, and it's a really good product, and it does not break down the leather, does not break down the rubber, and does not break down any of the adhesive. So that's where we go. Um, from a time frame when you when you should do it i would tell you there's there's some personal preference to it but there's also some some like true science for me the boots when they come out of the box they're pre-treated so you're mm -hmm. going to find that they beat a little bit of water they do the things they're supposed to do they're made to look pretty on the shelf as is once you put that wax on there it's going to darken your leather and, and you're going to get kind of a sheen to it and it's going to put that conditioning back in the leather some folks are like i want to do it on day one right out of the box uh -huh. i want to get that conditioner in there and, and that's what we would recommend there are guys you could wear them for a few days you can go out and break them in and then do it as well um but i'm kind of a if you're a 200 days in the field kind of guide yeah you need to probably you know put some wax on your boot several times a year three mm -hmm. four times a year if you're the normal joe that's going out on a whitetail hunt and and you're maybe going to spend 10 weekends in the field a year because um, you got kids and you, know, yep, you got, you got and life. The world, the world, the world gets in the way once a year is good. Twice a year at the, I mean, what it's, it's always for me, have your boots ready to go, put, yep. put some uh, wax on them at the beginning of the season. And at the end, clean them up, get the mud off of them, get the, you know, the stuff off of them so that there's, they're not sitting there all year long with that um, impacting the leather, get them cleaned up and put a little, bit of wax on them there for the off season. And then you're going to be in a, in a really good place. Perfect. 
Yeah, so it's something good for me because it sounds like I'm doing it the correct way for me. That's what that's what I was that's what I was asking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that, that that's good. And yep. and and uh, it, it's the big key there for me is putting this product on your leather. So when you wet out, so like and, and wetting out is basically the soaking of the leather, soaking the outside of the boot because yep. you didn't put any product on that boot. Think about wearing your boots. There are you know you're already tired. You're already hiking your your buns off, and you're 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 worn out from the day if your boots are soaked and and saturated with water you're carrying extra weight mm-hmm. so it's really smart it's really smart to keep that material coated so that it does shed that water and, it, and as little weight as it is a wetted out boot weighs a lot more than a dry boot no doubt so as as you said you you mentioned a whole bunch of different products that that Mindle does which ones yeah. which ones are available here in the US we do, and I, I don't have a hard count on the styles that are available in Europe, but I would tell you the majority of their styles that they do in Europe would be exactly as you would uh, you would think. It's light hiking and, and trail and a little bit of um, casual, and then they, they make their traditional hunting boots. Here on our side in North America, we there's a much uh, heavier focus on the hunting side of product and the traditional mountain boots. So the, the products that we have here in the U.S. are a mix of specific product that we make only for the United States market, North American market, and uh, some of the European stuff that we bring over that fits some gaps that fit our customers' needs. And so we have our Comfort Fit hunters, Comfort Fit hikers, Vacuum hunters, Comfort Fit extremes. All of those boots are made specifically for us here in North America and not sold in Europe. But things like the Kibo and the Glockner and the Himalaya, those are european product that we bring here in, into the states and we don't make it specific because they're already really awesome boots and they they fit our customers demand here mm-hmm. so um we we do a bit of a mix so and, and we're going to continue to mix that and i think you're going to see us focus more on the hiking side of things and get some more lighter weight stuff in here just because you know i mean you, you can only wear a hardcore hunting yep. so many days a year and we want to get guys out and get them walking and getting you know if you're on a shed hunt you may not need to be Wearing your heavy duty boots, you might want a nice lightweight lightweight hiker or something that's still supportive, but not so, you know, hardcore. Yep. So, um, with all, with all this selection, like how and and one of the things I had on here, and I'm, no, I'm going to wait till the end on that. I'm going to let's start with explain your team that you've got based here in the U.S. It's, it's uh. I'm a very, very fortunate individual for having the time that I had at Cabela's to work for that family and meet some really world-class people. And I've got a small team here in the U.S., but a, a, a fantastic team. I've got a customer relations or customer experience manager. His name's Dan Shoemaker, and he's the guy that is on the phones and talking to customers and setting up all of our programs and doing everything that we can to make sure the customer gets everything they need in the in the purchasing process. And then I've got Riley Neenizer, who is my uh, marketing manager, and he's he does a lot. He wears a lot of hats, but just a world class guy that knows boots in and out. Um, and every single one of these guys is people are they're, they're guys I worked with uh, in my past history, and they were basically my right hand men at Cabela's, and, and knew that they could pick up the ball and run here. And the last one is uh, Todd Hicks, who is the vice president of Mindle USA. And he is really the guy that drives the business every single day when I'm not able to be there. And he just runs the operation and keeps us going and, and makes sure that we are spending money appropriately and, uh, and making sure we get all of our inventory on time. Perfect. And, and everybody's based out of Nebraska, correct? 
We are. We are all out of Nebraska. Our boots are warehoused in Kansas. So we ship right out in the middle of the country. So it really helps us connect with the consumer pretty quickly. When you start looking at shipping uh, rates and shipping timeframes, especially over the last year, since um, things have gotten a little weird with the USPS and UPS mm -hmm. uh, from a timing perspective, uh, it really helps us be more um, connected to the consumer in a, in, a, in a much faster way. Awesome. So before, before we get into, to buying a pair of boots and like what goes yeah. into that, is there, do you have any light that you can shine on some new products that may be coming that you haven't mentioned already? Yeah, we are really excited about a boot that we're developing right now. As we speak, I just was on the phone with uh, Lucas Meindl yesterday with regard to this boot. It is, it is, um, it's, it's hard to explain because it's different. It's, we've never done it before. We are going to build a, a lightweight boot in Europe like no one really truly has ever been able to do before. And it is, I've always said that when you start looking at the footwear market and you start looking into the, I want to buy something ultra light, mm -hmm. almost always something is sacrificed. Comfort is sacrificed. The materials are sacrificed in order to get them that thin to make it lightweight. Um, maybe some of the componentry on the inside of the boot is, is sacrificed in order to get that weight. And that's not, not the way we ever want to approach what we put on our customer's feet. So what I'm going to tell you is we're going to make a lightweight boot built in Europe that will not sacrifice anything. It's got full grain leather. It's got everything you'd ever want. It's got Gore-Tex. It's got a wonderful midsole, outsole, polyurethane mid. It has all of the components that we expect a really awesome mountain boot to contain, but it's going to put it into a, an everyday, every man's hunting boot, something that you could wear antelope hunting, something that, you, and you know, if you're on flat terrain, mm -hmm. it's something that you could feel way super comfortable in and not feel like you're, you know, packing around a big, heavy mountain boot. Yep. That's awesome. So what, what, that any, any idea on timing on that? We are, we will have it this fall. Okay. And that's where, um, we're trying to figure out the timing on everything of getting it in here. I don't have an exact date, but fall 2023, we will have this boot and I'm, I'm really, really, truly excited about it. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that one. It, it's going to be a good one. Yeah. So, um, as, as, Clients are coming in or, or any hunter or hiker and so forth. Let's, let's walk through the decision-making process that a person has when making, when buying a pair of boots, right? Cause sure. I, I think everything's in the world's kind of changed, right? Like the days of going into a retail store to try stuff on, um, man, I can't tell you the last time I was actually in a store and bought something, right? Like a shirt or anything. It's all, it's yes. all, it's all done online, which, which adds, which to some degree adds a level of difficulty, especially like yes. in my opinion, when buying a pair of boots that you know, you're going to disappear on for a, for a eight day backcountry hunt or mm -hmm. going on a sheep hunt, or even, you know, truthfully, even just going on a, a vehicle type hunt that you know, you're going to be hiking. If that's different than what you're normally used to, like those are the ones that, that guys will get a blister on, right? It's not the sheep hunt yes. that the guy has prepared for, for four months. It's the one that I'm just going, going out and I'm going to mule deer hunt and we're going to hunt from the vehicle and, and hike a mile here, a mile there. Those are the ones that'll, that'll get you. So when, when people are going through the process of buying a boot, like explain what, like, as, as you talk to somebody on the phone, like walk yeah. through that process. First question is where are you going and what are you doing? Mm -hmm. That's, and I think that's the most important thing. Number one, to 
just really pick that customer's brain because more than more than not, uh, more often than not, they're going to come in and they're going to tell you a lot of what they're going to do. They're not just going to say, "I'm going elk hunting." Yep. They're going to say, "Well, you know, this is my first time, and I, I'm I'm from I'll say Pennsylvania, and I'm really excited. I finally got my tag that I've always wanted to to, to pull." And I'm headed out there, and I can't have my feet fail me. What do I do? What 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 should I look for? And for me, everything starts on that. What are you going to do? Where are you going? Question. Mm-hmm. And so let's let's just use the elk hunter as an example. When are you going? I'm going to go in September. Okay, great. So you're going to go in September. You're going to have some pretty mild weather. You might have a cold night here or there, but I would not suggest getting into a heavily insulated boot. Yep. We need, we need to look at something that's either lightly insulated or uninsulated. And let's talk about your foot. What do you wear today? What are the things that make you feel comfortable? Um, do you have a wide foot? Do you have a narrow foot? Um, do you have any um, injuries to your feet that can potentially cause an issue or are even up to the point where are your feet a different size? And, and I think you'd be surprised. Based on my history, I'd say 70% of people don't have two feet that are the exact same size. Um, that, so you start getting into that and start asking them what their expectations are. Do you think you're going to be above, uh, 8,000, 9,000 feet? Do you think you're going to be below 8,000, 9,000 feet? What terrain, um, are you believing you're going to be heading into? Is it going to be super gnarly terrain where you're going to be walking shale slides or you're going to be in some really rough scree? Are you going, or are you going to be more of a, um, I'll call it a, a field hunt, Mm -hmm. um, exercise. Uh, so we just kind of chat through all of those different things to try to figure out where they're heading. And then we know how our boots fit. If you call us on the phone, the guys that answer the phones, they, they know our footwear backward and forward and they know how it fits. And so they'll ask you maybe potentially to, to make sure that we're getting you in the right set. So we're not sending boots back and forth a million times and costing time and effort. Mm-hmm. Um, can you go get your foot measured? And we have a, a measuring device that we actually, you can print off of our website and we can tell you exactly what size you're going to need. And I would say we're high 90%, 95, 97% on the money every single time about getting you in the right size of shoe on the first try. And then we have you try them on at home, lace them up, put them on your feet, put on a good sock first. Number one, I should, let me back up. You absolutely have to try on your footwear and have your foot measured in the sock that you plan on wearing that on the adventure you're going on. And I'm I'm here to tell you, you should throw every cotton sock that you own in the garbage and buy <laughs> merino wool and 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 wear a really great sock because it will change everything for you. A lot of times, the guys get blisters in their you know, when they're wearing footwear. It's almost always the sock problem and not always the boot problem because mm-hmm. they're wearing really junky socks and, and uh, that just creates a lot of friction holds a lot of moisture so that's really the process so then we just walk them through and answer all those questions that they would have for where they're going what are they doing what are their expectations and what terrain do they think they're going to run into and we can get you in the right boot every time that's awesome as um, I, I literally as you were typing i had to go to your website because i just looked up the sizing um, yes. information that you have on there and anybody that's listening um it's down in the bottom of the website. You can click on there and sizing help. Looks like it looks like something I could print out right now, put on the floor, yep, and get the get this the size that I would want. And I do have to say, I put one note down here. So, say somebody does have two different size feet. Are you sending them say a ten and a half for the right and a, a ten on the left? How how do you handle because, when somebody doesn't have the right the I mean, not right the same size yeah. feet? 
<laughs> That's a good question. Um, it is it is impossible in the manufacturing process to produce just rights and just lefts. Yep. So what we do in that situation is is we'll work with that customer with everything that we've got because we want them to be comfortable and we want to make sure that they're squared away and dialed. If if and I have had this happen in my past and even here today today with Mindle USA, we've had to sell people two different boots and the, those guys know it though yeah, they yeah, show they up know and it like look advance. i've got a, i've got an 11 and a half on my right and i've got a 10 on my left and, and almost always it's from an injury right so they're and and if they don't get that boot to fit that foot well they are in a lot of pain and uncomfortable so we will work with that customer to try to figure it out and what you always want to do if you have two feet that are of different sizes is fit the bigger foot okay because you don't want that one boot being short and then you're coming down a decline and you and you end up beating the front end of your toe and you lose your big toenail and all that stuff from you know that short boot impacting your your big toe so we always fit the big foot and then we can do some things we can have the person sock up on that off-size foot we can put a spacer underneath the footbed we can do some things from late even with lacing to help that boot get a little tighter fit a little better uh-huh. on that offsize on that offsize foot. So we will work with the customer a hundred percent to make sure that they're dialed in on that side of things. And you had mentioned mentioned um the the socks and so forth. Is there a mm-hmm. sock that you recommend? We make socks uh, at Mindle. They're knit in Italy. They are merino wool, high content merino wool. Everything I think is north of forty five percent merino wool in, in all of our socks. It is the it is my i would send you down the road in our socks every day all day they are really world class the merino wool uh, comes from new zealand the material and, and the all of the moisture wicking materials and nylons and everything else that we do there comes out of uh italy we we knit these socks there in italy and they are unbelievable they're anatomically um knit so like there's a true right sock and a true left sock so you're not you don't got to do the look every time to figure out which one you wore it on last time. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. But it really helps. It takes out all that extra material. So if you have a, a just a generally shaped sock, sometimes you have too much material mm-hmm. over off your pinky toe, and that can cause some abrasion and cause some friction. So we don't want to have that. So we, we do all of ours anatomically, and our socks are, are they are world class. I it, There's a lot of really great sock manufacturers out there. So if, if a guy likes to wear you know, darn tough or whatever. That's, yep. that's no big deal. But I would tell you, I would put our suck up against anybody's. So I know this is probably a tricky one. Do you recommend a liner or do you recommend if you have that right sock, you won't need a liner? I've gone through phases in this. Um, so early in my career, polypropylene liners, silk liners, mm-hmm. things of that nature were, were a big deal. I don't wear a liner sock anymore. And I truly don't um, prefer a liner sock. It adds a little bit um, of, of thickness. It can sometimes they're they're even getting hard to come by. A lot of people have kind of moved away from it. Yep. My recommendation is always, no matter what you, whenever you go out on a hunt, you've got a day pack, you've got a fanny pack, you've got something with you. Take a pair of socks every every single time. Yep. Have two pair of socks, and if you get to the middle of the day and your feet are tired, or you've stepped in a creek, or you've done something, um, or you get you got you hiked it really hard, and, and your feet are sweaty. Just switch out your socks midday. It will change your life. It changes the opportunity for a blister. It changes the way your feet feel at the end of the day. It just, it's its so much better for you. So I am a believer of no liner, wear the sock as it is, and have a second pair there available if you need it. 
I can tell you on a 14 day sheep hunt, changing your sock pretty much gives you another life. (laughs) (laughs) There are small, small things to look forward to and nothing beats putting on a, putting on a new sock on a sheep hunt. Like I'll have a little pack of candy or, you know, Snickers or whatever in my pack. And so when I I sit down for my midday little Snickers soiree, I, I change out my socks and that's where I, 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 you're, you're hundred percent right. It gives you another life. It gives you a boost. That's your second wind. Yep. And I think, I think it's really important. No, that's, that's funny. And I've, I'm I'm sitting here and, and as you've been talking, explaining everything, um, and I told you I've worn them for worn mindles for over 10 years now and I've hit every continent in them. I've done awesome. Upland Slam um, in them to where I was in them literally every day. The Waterfall Slam, everybody's like, well, you're in waders. I'm like, actually, you'd be shocked on the on the Waterfall Slam how many days I was not in waders, and I was actually in Mindel boots. So it's done yeah. that. In South America, I was in Mindel boots every day for part of for, for that Waterfall Slam. Um, I mean, sheep hunts, deer hunts, you you name it. I basically wore them all yeah. over the place, and, I, and you heard me earlier. The bre- the break-in period of them, which there really is no break-in period, right? Yes. I spend a lot of days in my boots, so I wear boots out. And just that fact of knowing of, okay, I, I get back off a of sheep hunting, like this this pair of boots has, has been in the field for literally 300 days, and it's it's time to go. To get the other pair and know that I don't have to break it in for, for months on end is just, it makes it so easy for me. I haven't had a blister and I can't even tell you how long. And I kind of went through that That's same awesome. phase of, do I, do I wear a liner? Do I not? Nope. I just, I, I just wear merino wool socks, right? And have, have yep. that pair in the bag to change. If I'm on a sheep hunt, what am I bringing more of? It's not underwear. I'm bringing more socks, right? I, like, I can live right. with the other. If I have another yep. pair of socks to put on, like you've got a lot of guys will say, I just bring two, right? I rotate back and forth. I'm like, that's awesome. Imagine if you had four, right? Yes. Rotate back and forth. And on day five, you bust a new pair out and put those on, your feet are going to thank you, right? Like that, that, just the little <laughs> yes, joys of, of, of sheep hunting for that three ounces <laughs> yeah. that, it, that you had to throw in your bag. When you're, when you're counting ounces, as you, as you have to do in those types of hunts, you're right. You, you sit there and you think about what are the things that are going to make this hunt possible and, mm-hmm. and get me through the, the, cause I mean, there's obviously days where it, you're just getting your head caved in, right? Oh. You're just hiking and you're, and, yep. and you're, and you're just beat and you're worn out. Those little, um, convenience, those, those little things that just give you that little bit more pep in your step, uh, a, a lightweight pair of socks that, don't, that doesn't take up a ton of room yep. and doesn't add a whole lot of weight to your, to your bag. That's where you got to go. And I, I'll, I'll give you two two examples on that, and they're both sheep hunts. That my my last two sheep hunts, complete opposite. I did a, a desert sheep on the Navajo reservation. Not yeah. a, I mean, it hadn't rained there, and I, it looked like it hadn't rained in seven years there. Right, like wow. hot, dry, and I had a pair there. But now I'm changing because it's sweat. Right. Yes. You're, 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 it's literally 80 degrees out and we're hiking and everything is sweat. So it all like your feet are sweaty. So there I was literally going through two to three pairs a day. Right. Cause it, it's yes. all this hard rock and you're straight up and it's tough on your feet. So anytime we took a break after a couple hours, I would change out my socks. Right. No, no foot yeah. problem whatsoever. And the other yeah. extreme opposite is in British Columbia, dad and I were up there um, stone sheep hunting this last year and complete opposite. Right. Now it's raining every day. And yes. it's cold and it's windy and it just seemed like 
you know how long it is when you're hiking for 10 hours a day in the rain uphill. Yeah. It just seemed yes. you I've ran out of things to think about. I've thought about everything seven <laughs> more times, still come yes. to the same conclusions. Now all of a sudden I just realized I walked for an hour and I don't even know what I was thinking about. It was just that, that hour went past and there yes. I was changing it because it was raining, right? Like I, and my yes. feet were wet for a different reason. And yep. yes, it was temporary because the rain was going to get on it. But again, I didn't have any foot issues. It, it helps. It, yep. it helps a ton. It, it is a life saver. Yep. Well, that's great. And what what I would like to do, Phil, is when you get that new boot in that lightweight, yeah. like let's let's hop back on here and do another podcast once you once you get those in and just just yeah. cover everything about those. I'd I'd love to do it. I think it's going to be a very, um, a very highly sought after product, and it's going to be a bit of a game changer in that lightweight hunting boot market. I think it's going to be really outstanding for that kind of a boot to come out of Europe. Well, you definitely hit the the need of it. Like that's like, I always think of, okay, on the, on the warmer weather hunts or antelope mm-hmm. hunts or even yes. down, even down right. in Mexico in January, right? Like there are days that it's 75. It's very rarely cold down there. Like what boots are people wearing there? Well, they're wearing the boots that they're up in the Northern Rockies on, right? Like it's an yes. over, it's an over, overkill of a boot it's not as comfortable as because you're walking on straight ground like i can't wait to see it i can give you like just a one uh, and what you'll see with this boot when you get it and this this comes from past history but a lot of guys will go into these warmer weather hunts maybe let's say they're going to arizona they're going to be in a warmer weather situation in new mexico or mexico Mm -hmm. texas everything in those states will either bite you or poke you yep and so they'll go out there with their lightweight hikers and they'll have some nylon side panels on that and they will be forever on the ground with their pliers on their multi-tool picking uh, cactus spines yep. out of their feet. Yep. And so there's you, you can't compromise on those hunts because you need that protection of leather, but this boot will give us both of those things where it's lightweight and still give you the leather from the protection side of things so you can feel confident in that, you know, bite you, poke you, you know, kind of terrain. Well, so another one that I thought of was Africa. So I hunt in Africa a few times, yes, a few yes, times yes, a year. Yes. I, I wear my mountain boots there for the sole yes. reason is what you just said. Everything will poke you or bite you. And I yes. see the guys over there wearing these shoes that are below the ankle. I'm like, there is no way I'm doing that. Right. I'm a Northern yep, guy. I'm not used to poisonous snakes. Those are not my, those are not my thing. Right. <laughs> like I don't want, like I'm a boot, yep. I'm a boot guy, but what happens is your feet start sweating like crazy. Right. Cause it's, it's too they much do. boot for what you're doing. So I can't, I like, I'll, I'll hundred percent use, use these for that. Like, that's awesome. Yes. It'd be, I think they're going to be really, really perfect for that. Oh, well, that's awesome. Phil, thanks for your time. I know you got to get running today and hopefully right. I really appreciate it. you're uh, I'm looking at here. You're, Oh man, three weeks away from Turkey season out there. Yes. Yeah. I am heading to the farm next week to look for sheds. And then that gets me set up for turkey hunting, and we will not be far away. There you go. Good time of year is coming, and the next thing you know, summer will fly by like it always does, and we're back in the hunting season. Uh, I can't wait for that. Yep. Have a great day, Phil. I really appreciate appreciate it, Mark. We'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thank you, everyone out there, for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.